Age to Practice, applying educational reading in the classroom. Join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Page to Practice is a podcast focusing on the application of education research in the classroom. Each episode features a conversation with a different guest, teachers, authors and others interested in education, talking about what the phrase from page to practice means to them and the importance of applying evidence to classroom practice. Hi and welcome to Series 5, Episode 17 of From Page to Practice. In today's episode, I chatted to Primary Deputy Head Teacher Nathan about his experiences of moving into leadership and some of his particular areas of interest. I hope you enjoy. Hi, so today I am here with Nathan. Nathan stepped forward as a willing volunteer uh, to talk to us today um, when I put a call out for anybody who would like to speak about moving into leadership, because that's something a lot of people have asked me to uh, to include. So I'm not going to introduce Nathan. I'm going to ask Nathan to do that job for me, please. Hello there. Thanks for having me. So, yeah, my name is Nathan Douglas and I am currently a deputy head teacher at a large um, inner city primary school in Birmingham. I've been doing that job for about four years and I've been in education for around 15 years now. Um, So before the deputy role that I'm currently doing, I was assistant head at the same school and then I was a literacy leader in a different school before that and I did three years in my ECT, NQT school before that. So yeah, quite a varied career. Great. I think there'll be some interesting things for us to talk about there in terms of the the steps you've made to get to, to the point you're at. So before we do that, though, what does the phrase from page to practice mean to you? I think in other professions, um, medical, scientific professions, even, you know, law, that sort of thing, it comes with the territory that the professionals who work in those sectors keep on top of the most up-to-date theories, medications, if you're in that field, literature, um, groundbreaking technology, you know, for engineers, etc. And it just, it, it comes with the territory. You're almost expected to keep afloat of the new things that are going on. And I think in the education sector, we're just starting to realise that that should be the case in schools. But the problem is, and, and this is just my opinion now, the evidence bank is highly, highly weighted and driven towards external um, accountability factors and measures. So, for example, the EEF that highly line up with what Ofsted are looking for. Then, of course, you've got the Ofsted research reviews themselves that are in line with what the DFE are looking for in schools. So. For me, it's about doing what other sectors do, but not just going to this bank of accepted research that's out there. It's about using the, the the kind of professional dialogue that you would normally have in CPD and insects, but looking for other places that research is happening and not just the EEF and the Ofsted research reviews. That's what it means to me. That's a really great definition. Thanks. You're listening to From Page to Practice, 
Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. So moving into our middle section now, as I mentioned kind of in the introduction, I put a call out a few weeks ago because lots of people were saying to me, I'd like to hear from someone about how they've moved into leadership. And I've had a few different people step forward and that's great because you're from kind of different sectors and different ranges and that kind of thing. So and moving into leadership is, is the basis of, of what we're going to talk about today. So um, when did you, what did you do when you first decided, you know, okay, leadership is something I want, I want to head towards? Is there something you've done, some steps you've taken to, to help you in that process? I think to a large degree, it's being within a school where the leaders who are currently in post value the teachers' professional development, um, because I think there are some um, sectors within education that very much think along the lines of, you're a good teacher, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you out of the classroom and you'll automatically become a good manager and a good leader, and that's just the way, that's just the way it will be. Um, but that's definitely not the case at all, in my experience. Good teachers... Um, are almost frowned upon for staying in the classroom. And you often hear, you know, the predeterminate, I'm, I'm just a teacher. Well, actually, there's absolutely nothing wrong with just being a teacher because we need teachers who are crafted and highly skilled in what they do. And that only comes with time. And, and I'm talking years and years and sometimes, in, you know, in the best teachers' cases, decades. Um, so for me, it's very much working within a school that invests in the teachers themselves to become good managers and then good leaders, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it really does. So have you got any kind of any examples or things that have stood out to you of things that good schools that you've maybe worked in or been around or heard of have done to help give that support and develop towards leadership or towards better teaching? It's coaching with um, a real clear definition of what the coaching means to that leader and that school, because coaching can sometimes be used as a bit of a whitewash, uh, catch-22 phrase that it, it, uh, we, we coach here. Well, actually, you don't. Um, you just give advice, for example. Um, but coaching with, with the view of, of careful succession planning. And I find that the best schools, they are happy to, if you like, lose teachers to other settings um, if it's for the good of education generally. And, you know, we're, we're in a situation in the, in, in the English um, context whereby teacher retention is a massive, massive issue with teachers leaving in their droves, particularly in the first five years and up to 40% of teachers leaving within 10 years. And I think unless we stop putting plasters over the quick fixes um, to keep teaching in the profession for another few months or another year or two, we need to start looking at the root causes um, of why those teachers are leaving and why why those who are staying are staying. And I think that a lot of it is to do with the ethos of the school you're working in and, and how much professional development and dialogue goes on in that school. Yeah, absolutely. Is there is there anything you'd say you've experienced as you've stepped on um, that you think really particularly supported you or, or helped you or gave you the, the nudge in the right direction? 
reflective practice is is a term that's banded around an awful lot in schools um and again it's about unpicking what that means but having that real critical friend be it a peer who works alongside you in that setting or or that more experienced coach in your school um to really unpick the decision making processes that you have gone through and and rationalizing what you have done as either a teacher a manager or a leader and why you've done that and hand in hand with that not being afraid to you know put all your cards on the table and sh- not shying away from the decision that you've made and looking at it looking at it critically as well um and not being afraid to say yeah I've done that but I wouldn't necessarily do that again this way or your critical friend or your your mentor or your coach saying well have you thought about it through this way have you have you tried looking at it through through that angle instead and I've experienced that myself in in my current role and that that's I have to say one of the strengths of of the school that I work in and, and why the the managers and leaders who work in in the school I do do so well Actually, I think there's a really good point there that I've picked up on whilst you've been speaking, and it's that we do a lot of mentoring when it comes to early career teachers, and that often kind of drops off, doesn't it? And you used, I know you said coaching earlier, but you used the word mentor just now, and I that I thought actually that's a very good point. That mentor, that critical friend, that do you think often that gets lost along the way, and that's having kind of contributing to to the retention problems you were talking about? I think again, it's taken for granted because um, you're a good teacher, so therefore you're going to provide good mentorship for an ECT. Um, I think we, we see a lot of that in education what what we see less of is you've been a good teacher for say six years seven years however long it might be but more than ECT so I've got the perfect match for you within this school or another school to provide you with that coaching now that you actually need because again going back to those phrases that are banded around all the time mentoring and coaching that the lines blur significantly I feel in education whereas actually they're two very different strategies um, particularly from an educational leadership point of view so it it could be um, a a contributing factor Um, but I also think that when you enter the teaching profession you you enter it mostly for for genuinely good reasons and and you know that that genuine care and wanting to make a difference to the life of children um as you develop into your first couple of years you sort of figure out the kind of teacher that you are and the kind of styles that that fit well within your um you know practice and pedagogy but as you get more into your career you become very much established and i feel that if you're not given the kind of um, I'll just call it guidance, be that mentor, coach, or whatever it might be, peer. If you're not given the right kind of guidance, that real established identity that you've got, it could jar with any sort of management or leadership responsibilities you're given or choose to go into if you're not given that guidance. And I think that sometimes that jar, that um, clash, that conflict that 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 can then lead to something more negative if we're, if we're not careful if that makes sense yeah no it does it definitely does so just to to help kind of frame the discussion a little bit more you, you told us a bit at the start but can you tell us a little bit about your your journey into the into where you are in leadership now because that might give us some ideas of things that we can can explore a bit further about how you got there or things you might have done differently yeah sure so 
for the first three years of my career, I worked in um, quite a leafy school in um, Solihull in the West Midlands. And the children were very much um, white middle class. And I had a real firm, um, solid start to my career. I was surrounded by um, professionals who were just brilliant at their job. I was given a lot of flexibility, a lot of autonomy from the head teacher. And it was a real brilliant start to my career and I can definitely say that I wouldn't be the teacher I am now if I wasn't given that freedom and flexibility in those first few years. Um, I'm someone who's always been quite ambitious and wanting that next step all the time and the school that I started my career in didn't have any any management opportunities. So I moved schools to a school in Erdington uh, which was a year six post and came with a literacy leader and I moved there because I was looking for that first step into middle management. And that's when I first, and it's quite naive looking back, actually, I, I realised that at that point, not everybody teaches the same way. And some teachers are really, really good at what they do. And some teachers need that extra support, that extra development, because they're not quite at the standard that we would want for the children's education. And that for me was a, a massive learning curve um, in terms of, okay, we are all very different in the classroom, even though we work under these same uniform policies, these same uniform curricula that dictate we need to work in this way and do that and do that, we're very different. So that I would say is the first real profound management light bulb moment that I had. Yeah. So in, when you stepped into that that first middle management post, so I think it's great that that it, that solid star makes a big difference. And I think that's that's really important to to recognise that the school someone starts in the, the foundation that they're given and the confidence they can build there can make a massive difference, can't it? Yeah, very much so. Um, so when you took that first step out of that solid school that you were used to into middle management, was there anything you were given to to help you with that, or was it kind of just a, an expected? You're just gonna you're gonna you're gonna be okay. You, you, I think you can probably tell from the way I'm speaking that I think I know what the answer is going to be, but I'm gonna let you go for it. Yeah, you, you're right. It's that case that I mentioned a few minutes ago. You're a good teacher, so you'll be a good manager, and yeah. That's not me being critical on anybody in that school because I had a fantastic four years there. And again, it, it, it helped build the leader that I am now, but it was very much sink or swim. And I was teaching an incredibly challenging year six class at the time, one of the most challenging of my whole careers. I loved them to bits, but they were they were extremely challenging. Um, and I had the support of a fantastic TA who to this day I'm friends with because she just the, the pair of us together just just kept that class going with what they needed to but in terms of the management side of things and leading English it was yeah just just get on with it and just just figure it out with yourself um and I think that experience mind you I don't know whether I'd call myself experienced back then because I'd only been in the job four years but experienced teachers have to have an incredibly high level of resilience and an incredibly high level of perseverance because going back to that 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 jar I was talking about earlier that clash there were things as a manager that I was having to say or do because the policies dictated that I step up to them in that certain manner that were not necessarily sitting well with me from from a teacher perspective and it's that you have to draw on that resilience, draw on that perseverance and draw draw on that 
um, sense of, okay, why did I enter the profession in the first place to align and, and, and get the job done so that the children who are not in your care get the same level of education that the ones who are in your class and likewise the member of staff is supported as well that's really important that this is not being done to you know that you every member of staff deserves kind specific and helpful support and that's something I hold myself accountable to every day if you if you can't give support or feedback or critique that is kind specific and helpful all three of them then you shouldn't you shouldn't be doing it and that that's what I try and hold myself accountable to even now. Oh, that's a great that's a great rule to be to hold yourself to. I'll come back to that in a minute. But I was thinking whilst you were talking there, this kind of jumping into to middle leadership that so many people do. Do you think it's just a kind of accepted that's the way it is and that's the way it'll always be in teaching? Or do you think there's some things we could be doing to support those people in those first steps? So I, I you know, in a similar kind of position about about three years in, stepped into a second in department position. No one had ever told me how to do that. You just kind of get on with it. But is that kind of a sink or swim position that some people will get on with it and do well and some people it will put them off doing it and it could be – and I just I just wonder if it's a uh, – yep, that's part of teaching, we get on with it and do it, or if there's something we could or should be doing more at that point. I think it comes back to – the idea of schools being let me get my thoughts schools very much being externally influenced and controlled and audited and, and checked on and it's the idea of we, we need that manager or we need that second in department or that person to get this job done so who who are our good teachers who who will be able to do that to the best um ability because if we didn't have that, what we would then have is just really good teachers upskilling themselves year on year, getting better year on year. Because I do feel there's a need for year group experts who have been in the year groups for a long time, as well as, you know, that fresh that fresh blood that comes in with, with new members of staff, etc. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know whether it's a chicken or egg situation, because if 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 schools... If schools weren't marketised and set on one another in the competitive formats that they are, regardless of what institutions you're working and what levels, teachers would just be left alone to do a really good job. But because they're not, we do have that case of we we need people to to manage and lead to push those standards up further. Yeah, it's kind of a knock-on effect, isn't it? You yeah. can't change one thing without something else and something else. And yeah, we don't have much. the time to and the resource to put into making sure all of these new middle leaders are completely prepared before they have to kind of be thrown into it so yeah there's there's lots of things that all affect each other and you hear of um particularly in small primary schools as well where you might have a 1.5 entry um across the school or even you know your, your very small village schools where primary school teachers are expected to do loads and loads and loads and they're not necessarily experts in that field um you know with the Ofsted agenda of these deep dives you know I lead languages in school um as one of as one of the things that I do um I got an E in French at GCSE but because there's nobody who is um 
I suppose, willing to lead it because it's a scary subject to lead as part of the deputy role. You know, give, give the unwanted job to the deputy, give the unwanted job to the assistant heads. Um, I think that that puts on teachers a lot and it, it, it's not fair because, like you just mentioned, the, the, there's no real support f- for them, but they're just expected to to pick up the slack. I think teachers are sometimes a little bit like GPs um, in terms of, we know not a lot about lots and lots and lots of different things that doesn't necessarily make us poor at our jobs or, or I'm not trying to de-skill the profession in any way but I think it does heavily put on uh, primary school teachers especially. Mm. I, I hear everything you've just said with two different hats on I hear it with my secondary background languages teacher screaming going yeah that's what's so difficult and then I'm hearing it with my primary school governor head on going, yeah, and this is what primary schools are are up against. And that's something that I've only just started in the role. And actually, for me, it's a real learning curve about the differences between primary and secondary. So, yeah, there was so much swimming around my head there that I haven't even formulated it into a question. <laughs> but it's just, yeah. So we'll, we'll carry on. So after your, your year six literacy leader where where does the, the journey continue as it were <laughs> so year six is the best and worst year group ever um you can go from a complete and utter high at half past 10 to an ultimate crashing low at half past 12 and that is the nature of year six um and so i asked the head teacher of that school if there was a chance i could move year groups and because me and the ta you know, we, we we were good at what we did. The answer was no. Um, so I moved schools to try and get away from year six and got put into year six in my new school because it's it, once you're in six, you never get out. And someone did tell me that, and it's so true. Um, so I moved to this other school um, and went into year six in there, and I was just a class teacher for 12 months and absolutely loved it. And then uh, became assistant head after 12 months in that school leading on curriculum which was awesome because between myself and the deputy and the head we made a really good team each each of us had got skills and knowledge that the others hadn't so between the three of us we were really strong um, and that was a real good uh, I think I held that role for two years or about 18 months two years and then the deputy head teacher left and a little bit like I mentioned earlier in terms of it, it is just assumed that you're a good teacher, so you become a good middle leader, et cetera, et cetera. It was assumed that I would go for the deputy role and there was no other um, way around it, really. The deputy's left. Oh, Nathan's a sit at head. He'll go for that and he'll get it. Um, I, I got the job interim for 12 months and then I became substantive um, April 2020. So just before, no just before schools closed in the pandemic, whatever month that was. Um, And that's where I've been since. And I currently lead on curriculum, um, pupil premium and attendance and and, um, teach a little bit. I'm not full-time in class anymore. I I teach um, about 40% of the week, maybe. Um, So it's a good balance. It's it's a brilliant role. I really do enjoy it. Every day is very different. Um, I like the strategic and the operational side of things. And I, I like keeping my foot in the classroom as well. That's really important. So one of my questions was going to be, and I think you've kind of answered this. So what, how did you move into into that, like into your deputy role? But it kind of seems natural from from the way your school was set up and the the assumptions that were kind of made. Yeah, it, it was very much assumptions. And, you know, being brutally honest, it is an element of right place, right time. Um, that being said, I firmly believe that the governors wouldn't have given me the role if I wasn't 
you know, adequate for it. But in terms of would would I have got a deputy headship in another school at that time? No, because I was perfectly happy being assistant head teacher in the classroom, and and that, that that's that's really important to make uh, that point, um, because moving from teacher to middle manager was difficult. But I cannot describe how hard it is moving from middle manager to leader. It it, it it's all it like it it hurts your teacher identity is how I would describe it. It really really does hurt, and that's no criticism on anybody in that school at all, because I'm still I'm still there now, but. I wanted to be the best deputy head teacher I could be from day one. And it's just not possible because you're not a deputy head teacher until you're a deputy head teacher, uh, chicken and egg again. And I had to accept that there were going to be things that I didn't know and, and didn't understand and couldn't do and get wrong and make errors. Um, and one of my friends actually described it to me as, um, like a jacket, like a suit jacket, your assistant head teacher suit jacket fitted really lovely because you'd worn it for two years and you, you, you knew how it worked. You now wearing a deputy head teacher jacket and it doesn't fit yet. And that analogy really has stuck with me. And the biggest piece of advice I would have, even, even for me, if I'm moving to headship in however many years time is the jacket's not going to fit at first and it, it's, it's going to almost hurt. It's going to be a bit tight. Um, because it's hard. It's really hard. That's a really good analogy because as you were, again, as you were talking, I was thinking the next thing I wanted to ask you, which you've started to cover, which is great, which is how was that transition? Because that has to be hard. Presumably when you're assistant head, my understanding of primary isn't great yet. So when you were assistant head, were you teaching full time still with the assistant head, but then you've gone to around, like you said, the 40% mark. How do you find that, that step from, oh, I'm not, I'm not in the classroom on a daily, but well, not teaching on a daily basis. You may well be in and out of classrooms, but how do you find that step? Because that must be, that must be difficult. What's the biggest challenge about that? Not having the kudos that you did have when you're in the classroom. Um, yeah. And again, it, it hurts. So I'll talk from the children point of view and then I'll talk from the adult point of view. From the children point of view, I had the same group of um, 16 children every day for around about two hours. And I loved it. And it was hands down the, my favourite part of the day. I loved being in front of the whiteboard, talking, doing my thing, questioning, you know, having fun, having a laugh. But they were not my class. They were not. 6d or 5d or whatever year group i've taught in um they were someone else's class and they went back to that person's class after the two hours they were with me and that really hurts because there's something that you can't explain that when that class of children in front of you and they're yours and you take them on that journey with them personally socially emotionally academically and i did all of that within two hours but it wasn't it was just like wasn't quite there to what it was when I was a previous class teacher and you know the kids did well and I'm sure I taught well but it's just it's not the same I can't quite articulate it. it's just not the same but then from um, a staff member point of view you've got those staff who knew me as a teacher and now know me as a deputy head teacher and that's really hard because you have to um, 
I'm not saying you can't be friends with you, with the members of staff because of course you can and some of them are my genuine friends but it's being taken seriously in a role that you know ultimately you might have to pull them up about something or you might have to make a decision that's highly unpopular so that's difficult and then as the years go by as they inevitably do and I sound like a really old man now when I say this but now I've been in this job four years um as as no three years as substantive four years as total deputy members of staff coming in now only ever see me as that which is really interesting because again without sounding like a 400 year old you know man some 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 of these teachers are obviously you know in their very very early 20s and they must think yeah but has has he has he ever done that has has he ever dealt with a really challenging child who's thrown a chair has he ever had a really aggressive parent shout to them on the door so when you try and support them and help them with that of course you've had that experience because you wouldn't have got to where you are if you hadn't have had that experience but it's been taken seriously from that angle as well um and for me it just comes back to giving that support that's extremely kind extremely specific extremely helpful and that's how I try and overcome that imposter syndrome almost because that's what it is it is imposter syndrome am I good enough to do this job um and, and the answer is still I, I don't know because you, you're never ready to be any sort of leader I, I find no there's some really good points there things that I wouldn't wouldn't have necessarily thought about as well but um what was I about to say I've just gone blank Oh, well, never mind. I'll come back to that. Um, so before we kind of move on and into the CPD library round, um, keeping with the kind of theme of from page to practice, and obviously the CPD library is very specific categories and everything, is there anything you've read, listened to, people particularly you like to follow on social media that you think have really helped you in this journey? I really like... Um thinking about how we can challenge things and how we can um you know get that status quo that's that's in the air in whatever um you know setting you work in and and challenge it for for the right reasons um which should be for the children so the most recent book i've read and i'm not an early years practitioner at all but the messages that this book has um it, it can be applied to any sector, even, you know, further education, higher education. It's by authors called Guy Roberts Holmes and Peter Moss, and it's called Neoliberalism and Early Childhood an Early Childhood Education, um, which sounds a really frightening title, but at, at the centre of it, all, all, all neoliberalism is, is the marketisation of schools in terms of the competitiveness from the accountability measures point of view and, and the auditing culture, the inspector offset, etc. That, that, that's in a nutshell all it is. And what this book does really well is it says neoliberalism, so all the accountability measures that I've just spoken through, can and should be challenged because we, we know it exists. Um, and therefore, all neoliberalism is, is one answer to a political question. And that political question is, what do you want education to be like? And I was like, that's, that's really interesting because we all want education to be I feel very differently to how perhaps the government might suggest it should be in terms of the the, the targets and the attainment, etc. And towards the very end of the book, um, there's a quote and it says, um, neoliberalism is a zombie ideology. And I'm a massive walking dead, resident evil zombie fan. And it really resonated with me because I thought actually it, it, neoliberalism and all the accountability measures that come with that, it is like a zombie because 
once a zombie bites you in all those films, you then turn into a zombie and then you bite the next person who turns into a zombie. And so what's happening in education and what this book really made me realise is the things that the EEF and Ofsted are saying are being passed on and passed on and passed on from all these leaders into the middle managers, into the teachers. So it's never going to end. But actually, a zombie also is, you know, almost like rotting and, and dying and becoming decaying. So we can we can put a stop to it. And what it takes is schools and the leaders to say, well, what do we want education to be like? And if you can answer that question with the child at the centre, then surely everything else will be okay anyway. Your results will be fine because the children are at the centre. Your attainment will be fine because children are at the centre. Your, your staff retention will be fine because the children are at the centre. So yeah, neoliberalism is a zombie ideology really hit home for me. There's so many images going through my head after that description. <laughs> I think I almost kind of want to leave it there so that when we, <laughs> when people are listening, they're just going to be left with that image. But I, I like it. I don't have a question about it because I like it and it made total sense. So before we move into that final round, two things. One, was there anything you wanted to talk about that we haven't had a chance to? And two, if anybody wants to connect with you, whether that's to talk about leadership or to talk about zombies, where can they do that? <laughs> um, I suppose in terms of, if there's anything else I wanted to say, it's just around that professional identity point of view. Um, I really feel that teachers almost automatically develop a sense of who they are in the classroom because of the reasons they wanted to go into teaching and also because of of how they are um, influenced to act in the classroom by mentors colleagues peers etc I think I think within England that bit's okay I know it's a bit of a sweeping statement but I do think it's okay what I, what I want to see more of is teachers grappling with a sense of who they are when they become a bit more experienced moving to those middle steps and like I did and I learned the hard way accepting that there's going to be points in your life where your identity hurts because there's a clash or a jar with something you're doing that doesn't sit right with you and knowing how to overcome that and who to speak to and who to bounce ideas off I think is really important um and I'm on Twitter yes uh it's Nathan underscore EDD underscore oh no what is it Nathan no no it's not it's Nathan underscore DHT underscore EDD that's right Fine. And what I tend to try and do is link it both in my newsletter and in the notes for this episode. So if there's any confusion in what you've just said, I will put a direct link to your Twitter profile so they'll be able to find that anyway. <laughs> Brill. Brill. But that last point you were making about, about um, teacher identity and allowing it to jar and knowing where you need to turn to, I think if there's one message to take away from talking about leadership today, it's, it's that, the analogy with the jacket and, and that, you know, that it's okay for things to jar a bit, but it's going to help you work out how to do the role you're doing and where to move and what needs to, to change and adapt as you go. So, um, yeah, really good message to end that section on. Thanks. You're welcome. Sign up to receive the From Page to Practice weekly newsletter to read tips and advice from my guests, as well as information on upcoming episodes. Find the link in the show notes for this episode. 
So our CPD library round then, um, it's a selection of categories uh, all to do with either things you've read or listened to or people you follow on social media, for example, whatever comes to mind when I say that particular category. Um, So are we okay to to go ahead? Go for it. Perfect. Okay, the first one then um, got you, first got you into evidence-informed practice. That's really hard because I think it, I think it would be some of the things that I was talking about earlier in terms of the ones I don't like. So things like the Fine. EF, which are yeah. highly flawed, and then when you look at the EF and their evidence base and um, you know who their participants were, and sometimes even that is flawed, or the methodology they've used is really flawed. I then went and looked for other things. So I think it would have to be the kind of people who I was saying are not good. So people like the EEF. That's absolutely fine because if it's something that's got you into it enough to make you interested to then challenge something, it's still been your your gateway into it at the, at the end of yeah. the day, hasn't it? Yeah, I suppose so. The so the next one is um, resonated with you the most. It was it was a, it was an article um, uh, by somebody called. Ackerman and Major, and so that's A K K E R M A N, and Major is M E I J E R, and they were talking about professional identity of teachers, and that's what got me thinking with with that. Oh, so anybody who was interested in that conversation, that end of the conversation we had, that might be an interesting kind of follow up to, to yeah. take a look at then. Yeah, it's it's about ten or twelve years old now, but the messages are still really really um, relevant, more more so than ever, I think, in the retention crisis. Mm, fine. And um, challenged your views? An author called Birch, who wrote um, the book's called A Research Agenda for Neoliberalism. Um, and he talks about neoliberalism in, in its plur- like plurality, in the, in the plural. Um, but basically, the key message of his book is, is it's everywhere. And when I finished the book, I was like, oh, my goodness, I, I'm, I'm, I'm part of this process. As a teacher and a leader, I am part of the, the, the problem of embedding it and self-perpetuating it and, and carrying it on, um, which I didn't realise I was doing until I read his book. And then that's what got me thinking of, well, it doesn't always have to be like that, which led to the neoliberalism and early childhood education book I was talking about. No, great. So, yeah. It's great T- when something's eye-opening like yeah. that, isn't Te- it? Te- you go, Whoa. <laughs> teachers are part of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, what's my next one? Had the biggest impact on your practice? Oh, that's that's really tricky as well, because I think it would. I think I'm going to have to answer that in in terms of. I don't think it's a specific, a specific book in terms of an author or, or, or a website or a blog. I think just acknowledging all those books I've read around identity that there's so much writing out there that says identity conflicts and identity, identity clashes is bad, but actually that acceptance of they will happen and that it can be a learning um, opportunity, I think. So I haven't yeah, got a reading, specific book for that, I'm afraid. Yeah, it's fine. Reading a collection of things that's gradually sent you in a particular direction or changed yeah. things over time for you. That's just, yeah, as, just as impactful as one thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, something that should be required reading for an early career teacher or a trainee teacher? I think 
anything to do with professional identity. So uh, an easy way into that would, would actually be a, a book called Identity by um, the author. I think it's Sarah Stedman. I think her surname is definitely Stedman, S-T-E-A-D-M-A-N. And the book was only published this year and it's just called Identity. Um, and it talks about it from a um, university lecturer perspective, but it's it's applicable to all sectors. And it just talks about um, developing your teacher identity and knowing what to look out for and what not to look out for. And it's just, it's almost like a practical guide to identity. It's really, really good. And it's really short as well, which is helpful. Absolutely, because we, you know, don't want to be recommending things to to people who've got an awful lot on their plate uh, if they're not accessible. So that's, that's really good. I've never heard of that, and it's something quite different. So, um, something which inspired you. It, I'm going to have to go back to the early childhood book than the yeah, neoliberalism yeah. one, and just how it, it, it actively seeks for, to alter. It actively seeks, sorry, for alternatives that don't cut corners, that don't lower standards, that don't try and not hold schools accountable, but it, it looks for those alternatives. And I really like that. Great. And I think that's also your most recent read, right? Is that what you said? You've, I'll skip on past that one yeah, then. That's my um, most recent is there read. something coming up next, something that's waiting for you to read it? Something on the to be read pile? <laughs> There's always something on the to read pile. Yeah. Um, it, it's, um, it's I can't remember the title, but again, it's doing neoliberalism and how it um, like the origins of it and how it established itself within schools. Um, because I think again, if you're looking to change and challenge the status quo, you've got to look at where things have come from. I think if there's one thing that people take away from this, or two things today, the overarching themes of what have come up, it's the identity conversation and then all of the neoliberalism stuff which the, there seems to be more more texts out there that you've mentioned than people might not have um, thought about before so that's really good yeah um, and, and like like I said you, you know it, it's not about getting hooked on that fancy word and that really confusing word and title it's it's just knowing that unfortunately a lot of our daily practices em- embed those accountability methods and audit culture and and until we lift the lid on it and start thinking well hold on why am I doing that then you're never going to get away from it and that's why it's able to exist almost without us realizing it Mm. so the final category and people have taken this in different ways so I'll explain the category is doesn't exist but should Um, and it could be something that you think oh I wish when I started teaching there'd been this book around or I'm really interested in this particular area and there's lots of little things out there but no one's brought it together in one place that's kind of where I'm going with doesn't exist but should so anything I would really like a book to exist where a head and deputy have co-authored a book on what the head wants and what the deputy wants and what the school wants and almost triangulate the three um, because it doesn't exist. And I'm really lucky because I've got a really good working relationship with my head teacher, both on a professional level and a personal level as well. So I'm, I'm lucky in that sense. But I, I sometimes sit there and think, look, if I had the time, wouldn't that be a good book to write? Because if you could give head teachers advice on what to do with their deputies and vice versa, deputies to head, because I, I can't imagine what it must be like being a head teacher, how, how lonely and self-isolating that must be, even if you've got a really good deputy. But also... The, the staff as well and and how to, and how to work with them but look at it from all perspectives that would be an amazing yeah. book 
really interesting and some insights that you wouldn't otherwise get as well i think and yeah, something completely. that people at all parts of that triangle could read because it's useful yeah. for head to know but yeah. also the deputies and also the people everybody else within a school to yeah. know what's going on in the mind of the head teacher because that's an insight that you don't you don't no. get every day well, i think you need to go and pitch that to someone <laughs> <laughs> anton deck's autobiography um is great because one font is Anton and the next font is Deck and the next font is Anton and so on. And, so on. And, you, and as you read it, I love Anton Deck, as you read it, you, you, you really do hear their distinct voices despite how many times people get them mixed up on telly. And that's how I envisage the book. So, you know, th- let's say the theme is, I don't know, let, the chapter's about lesson observations. The head could write a paragraph in a font and then the deputy, then the, then a, a teacher. And then it's almost like a dialogue between the three on what to expect and how to support challenge that sort of thing that that'd be an amazing book love it well you know if anybody's listening from a publisher nathan's twitter handle is is in the notes for this show <laughs> uh, <laughs> but no i'm um, honestly really thank you very much for giving up your time this evening because obviously people listening this is coming out in like october november but this is the first of september we're talking on today <laughs> which obviously is you know fairly significant in the in the academic year um or about to become very significant as of monday tuesday i don't know but either way thank you so much for giving up your time this evening um i hope you've kind of got across everything you wanted to talk about and um yeah thanks my pleasure thanks for having me are you interested in evidence-informed practice do you have a favorite edgy book have an idea of what great cpd is and should be or to just generally have a chat about education please sign up to join me for a conversation i rely on volunteers from all contexts and levels of experience Visit learninglinguist.co.uk forward slash page practice podcast for the sign up form. Thanks for listening to today's episode. What I found most refreshing is that every text Nathan mentioned was new to the podcast. Lots of different avenues to explore if you were interested in the things he had to say. If you're listening and considering taking part in an episode, please do. I really like it when people sign up out of the blue. Some of the best chats have been with people I've never spoken to before, honestly. So please don't be shy. Sign up to take part. You've been listening to From Page to Practice. Don't forget to join in the conversation using hashtag page practice podcast. Thanks go to Kevin McLeod of Incomtech.com for use of the tracks Cheery Monday and Fuzzball Parade, which are licensed under Creative Commons.